This is the story of my drive with Ryan Sayer. With Ryan Sayer. Good afternoon, all. Welcome to this brand new episode of the story of my drive. Please do forgive me a small delay. Nowadays, I'm a bit overwhelmed with music production projects, and I lock myself in recording studio for days, working on super important projects. But enough of this for now. Today, I'm talking to Paul Bailey. He spent quite a lot of his life in Abbey Road Studios. Yes, the legendary Beatles studio. Paul is going to share with you how his adventure with music started, how he got into Abbey Road, and of course his experience and advice you may find useful if you're thinking about music as your profession. Here we go, the guest of the week. So my guest of the week today is Paul Bailey, who is an ex engineer at Abbey Road in London and also has a studio in East Yorkshire. Hello. North Yorkshire. No, ah. <laughs> in North Yorkshire. <laughs> Could you tell me what do you do at the moment in your career? At the moment, I have my finger in several pies, really. Bread and butter work over the years has been dealing with uh, back catalogue recordings made on quarter-inch analogue tape and remastering them. But as that has tailed off over the years, I find myself doing other things. Quite a bit of location recording, mastering work, mixing work, a broad spectrum. And most of it is to do with classical music and maybe bits of film music here and there. The One of the problems I found over the years is that you get pigeonholed. Once some people know that you can do a certain genre of music, that's what you get asked to do. Mm-hmm. And then you don't get asked to do other stuff which does annoy me a bit, but that's how it is, you know, so uh, you just have to embrace it. So you like to be more versatile than people ask you to be? It's always nice to have different things to do, different different projects, and, you know, if, if everything's always the same... Kind of boring. You know, you know, I mean, music's yeah. not boring, but no, I, no. I, I get it. Yeah. But you know, don't, don't get me wrong... I love doing classical music, and I'm mm-hmm. a trained classical musician. It's it's all great, and there's an awful lot of classical music, mm-hmm. you know, especially you know people who don't realise what classical music is. But basically, anything that was written from medieval times up to now that doesn't cover the sort of popular genre starting in the 1920s, it's a heck of a lot of music. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, how would you describe yourself as a musician, producer, or well, just an artist? I wouldn't really call myself a musician as such. I mean, I play the piano. I've mm-hmm. got sort of diploma standard on the piano. But that's not good enough to call yourself a musician, really. There's so many people who are so much better. But uh, and I play other instruments to varying levels of proficiency. I think I'll probably leave it to other people to, to decide how to describe me. But, I, yeah, I love music. And just being able to earn a living dealing with music... You know, what's not to like, really? I don't go out and, uh, you know, perform as a musician. I'm sort of on the other side of the microphone doing all well, the engineering actually, side. not all musicians are performers, are they? This is true, yeah. Because as uh, a music producer, to some extent, you are a composer, mm. which is a job of a musician. So we could argue we are musicians even though we're not performing. And Well, that's true. I suppose it depends how you define being a musician, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If you're doing composition, then that is being a musician. Okay, then I'm a musician. <laughs> <laughs> Any goals for the future? Or maybe some goals achieved you 
you happy oh, to talk about? Goals for the future. You never know what's coming up. You know, when I left Abbey Road almost 20 years ago now, and back then in 2000, I was working pretty much full time on analog tapes mm-hmm. and sorting those out. There was still a lot of work going on in that area. In fact, there was too much work for me to do, really. So, you know, at that time I was subcontracting work to other people. And over the years, especially as CD sales have tailed off and are now sort of bumping along the bottom somewhere. (laughs) And most recordings, you know, of any interest from pre-digital days are now available. They've been remastered. Then you have to look into doing other things to, you know, to keep going. So... I sort of find myself doing more and more location recording. The studio I've got in Thursk is purely post-production. I don't record there. Mm-hmm. So like I go mi- to... mixing studio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mixing, mastering, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So I tend to go to churches and wherever to um, do recordings. Goals coming up, it's a, it's a tricky one. You've just got to keep your ear to the ground and make sure people know that you're out there and hopefully things come in. You know, I'm doing a saxophone quartet recording in February, recording the Cloth Workers Hall in January. I've just been in Harrogate and Norfolk, so I get out and about a bit doing various things. And I did a interesting recording in Abbey Road Studio 2 in, when was it? June, I think it was. I forget which month. Which I'm still working on now, which about the 12th mix, because... Mm-hmm. The client can't make his mind up, you know, which does drive you mad sometimes. But that, you know, is, is fun. You know, that's a, a chamber orchestra, but it's more sort of a, a poppy feel to it. So all the players were mm-hmm. playing to click with headphones on. If you ever try to record classical players with headphones on playing to click, it's a challenge because they're not used to it. Yeah, I noticed classical players <laughs> don't really like yeah. to click. It takes the feel out of it, I think, mm-hmm. as, as far as I'm concerned, which is true. Also, one big issue on that recording was it involves a piano as well, a solo piano. And the pianist insisted he was recording the piano at a different location. So it's already pre-recorded the piano. So therefore, it's not being played at the same time as the orchestra. So getting the orchestra and the piano synced together has been a challenge, to say the <laughs> least. Yes, yes, more than a few edits necessary. But nevertheless, you know, I love doing those sorts of recordings, word out, and hopefully things come in and I get more of them. I just came up with one question. Mm -hmm. I know you are a mastering engineer, Mm -hmm. and nowadays it's very confusing for lots of people who want to make music. What's the difference between mixing and mastering? And then they try using mastering plugins on the channels, which shouldn't be really Mm -hmm. done because there's a specific purpose to master the track Mm -hmm. and mix the track. Because I know from my experience, and I know some people who do that, not at the college, but in the wild, Mm-hmm. They mix the track and then they try to fix it while mastering and it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't, no. So what uh, would you say is the difference between these two processes? In broad terms, mixing is a micro process and mastering is a macro process. So when you're mixing, you're dealing with the individual tracks You might be working on compression for the kick drum or whatever it is, EQing your saxophone line Mm -hmm. so it fits in with everything else, all those sorts of things that you do with mixing and and doing quite serious bits of compression with quite big ratios and trying to get everything to sit nicely in the mix. 
But mastering, you've already got the mix. You're only dealing with a stereo file. And you've got to try and get the best out of that file that you can, which generally means you're doing very gentle things to it. You're not going to be boosting a particular frequency by several dBs. If you're boosting or cutting by more than a couple of dBs, or maybe three at the most, it probably means there's something wrong with the mix. And if it's a, an album, I know our albums are a bit old hat these days with, with playlists yeah. and everything, but nevertheless, albums still do happen. You've got to make sure that every track fits with all the other tracks, that one doesn't stand out because it's too bassy or too bright or whatever, and they're all at the same relative level so when you play through the album you don't have to keep adjusting the level of playback those sorts of things how much gap should there be between two tracks the end of one track and the start of another one what order should the tracks go all these sorts of things are all mastering decisions so there is quite a big difference but the main thing and it applies to mixing as well is learning how to listen to sound anyone can use an equalizer and boost a frequency it's yeah. easier but at what frequency should you be boosting or cutting and why uh, yeah, and why? What are you trying to achieve by doing that? And that takes quite a long time to feel confident that you're doing the right thing. And also doing nothing, if nothing needs doing. If you're sent the most brilliant mix, why wreck it? You know, why do something to something that already sounds great? I mean, you might just do a bit of level adjustment and just have the confidence to leave it alone. Just because sometimes I hear the question, what is your mastering chain or what is your mixing chain on individual tracks? And in my opinion, there isn't any because... When I'm mixing or mastering, I do what I have to do. It's not like a pattern. Obviously, sometimes it's like a general knowledge. You put this before this, not the other way around. But mm -hmm. if you don't need to use it, why would you? Well, yeah, if you don't need to use it, why have it in the chain at all? Yeah. Yeah, even on bypass. I agree entirely. Although you do need to think about things like, you know, do you have the EQ before or after the limiter or compressor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those sorts of things do need to be thought about. But every project is going to be a bit different. You know, you could fine to have templates and things, but... Bear in mind that you should be starting with a, you know, a blank slate and building things up, really, yeah. according to, to what's needed. One other small thing with mastering is I tend, wherever possible, not to use compression. Mm -hmm. I use limiters, but not compressors very much, simply because compressors alter the internal dynamics mm -hmm. of a mix. And for all I know, the mix engineer has spent a month getting it just like it is, And then you put a compressor on it and change everything. And then you, you might get a, a rude email. You know, I generally don't use compressors when mm -hmm. I'm mastering. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Are you proud of what you're doing or what you were doing in your career? Yeah. As you know, yeah, when I was in my mid-twenties, I managed to get into Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. So that, that was sort of quite a proud yes, moment. Yes, I, I was yeah. going to ask about it too. <laughs> yes. and, um, but yeah, as a general comment, Yes, I am. It's great working on fantastic pieces of music and, you know, when they're released, getting a credit on them, mm -hmm. you're alongside very famous names and there's you listed and it, it feels good. Sometimes, it, you know, as with any type of work, there are the downsides to it. There's sometimes what you've got to do is a bit boring. For example, trying to get all the tracks into sync with each other mm -hmm. can do your head in. And in the sort of mastering field, doing all the sort of admin type work, all the codes and CD text if it's required and track titling and make sure you haven't made any spelling mistakes and mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. It happened be... to Metallica, actually. Mm -hmm. When they released the second album, one batch of uh, the vinyls had like a paint problem and instead of blue, they turned up green. 
oh, and really? now they're like one of the rarest albums and people are actually chasing them. That was uh, back in the 80s. Uh, well, there you go. That's all down to rarity value, isn't it? Someone the, probably got fired back then, but now yeah. they're pretty valuable. <laughs> Same thing happened in the classical world with an um, LP of a couple of violin concertos with Giaconda De Vito. And EMI didn't press very many of them, mm-hmm. simply because they weren't that good. But because there aren't very many, you've got to part with a few thousand pounds <laughs> if you find one. It's a crazy world. Yeah. <laughs> and now about influences. What happened that you decided to be a musician or a producer? Ah, it's a tricky one, really. If I go right back to school days, I had a quite inspirational music teacher at school who was always pushing me to do stuff. Then when I completely flunked my A-levels, apart from music, he basically pushed me into going off and doing a music degree. Mm -hmm. And... I ended up at Newcastle University, which, as it turns out, was a great place to be. They had a studio there, and it was back in those days, doing a music degree was literally doing classical music. Mm-hmm. You know, anything back then didn't exist. We were talking about the 1980s. So they had built a recording studio, but none of the other students were interested in using it. They were all interested in playing their instruments, mm-hmm. apart from about three of us. And this studio was available to us 24-7, 365 mm. days a year. You know, so we'd just give them a key and you just go and unlock the door and then you go. So there were about three of us used to spend all our time in there you know, in the early hours of the morning just mucking around, doing stuff. And there were a couple of lecturers who um, got involved with us as well, a guy called Steve Ingham, another called Douglas Doherty, who's got a company up in Gateshead. He makes bits of recording gear, compressors and things like that. He basically taught me how to use a studio and... Being the early 80s, it was all analogue. So there was a row of Revox two-track tape machines Mm -hmm. and a mixing desk and some microphones. And that was about it, really. So I learned how to record and edit on analogue tape and all these sorts of things there. There was sort of my inspirations to get going. And learning how to edit on analogue tape was actually quite a good experience, really, because it makes you think very hard about whether or not you actually need to do an edit Because on analogue tape, once you've done an edit, you've actually physically cut the tape. There's no going back. Some people would say, yeah, it's a bit scary. <laughs> yes. But you, you do get used to it. And I did spend a while when I was at Abbey Road doing editing work for KPM Music, which mm-hmm. is a library music arm of EMI, at least it was at the time. So I used to go along to Denmark Street, you know, Tim Pan Alley at the time, and go up to the top floor where they had a Revox tape machine. And I was given master tapes of pieces three minutes long and a stopwatch, a razor blade and some splicing tape. And I had to make 29 second and 59 second jingle versions out of these three minute long pieces. Ah, That was a challenge because you've got to get it to 29 seconds. But how do you get three minutes down to 29 seconds and make it still sound coherent? And you've got a razor blade and you chop the tape and it's got to work. Mm -hmm. So it's not just whether the actual piece works from a structural point of view. But if you do an edit, has, has there been a modulation? Yeah. And you stick the two tapes together and you realize you're in a different key and all those sorts of things. That was a really good learning curve as well in terms of editing and thinking about it. And there's always inspirational people at Abbey Road. You know, when you're actually in the door, the place is stuffed with people who are <laughs> really good at doing what they do and making it look dead easy. So I suppose it's the art of being at the top of your game is you're doing something actually pretty complicated, but it looks like a walk in the park. But then you can appreciate how much knowledge they have and experience. Yeah, that's right. Then, you know, having appreciated that, you can then start watching them pretty carefully mm-hmm. and seeing what they do and then copying 
and then building from there. That's what you get the chance to do somewhere like Abbey Road. The main problem, if we just talk about Abbey Road for a moment, I can imagine at some point you might say, well, why did you leave? Mm. <laughs> yes. But the main issue I found was that the place is stuffed full of people who are brilliant at doing not very much. Mm. And that's the business model, really. From my point of view, I was you know, editing and remastering, a bit of mastering, that sort of work. But there's no chance of going into recording or other areas mm. because the people are doing it. Of course, they're, they're brilliant at it. So why would management say, Paul, you go and do it? Mm -hmm. why, why would they? In the end, it gets a bit frustrating because every day you know what you're going to be doing. And strangely, I, in a it's way... Like, um, yeah. office work, but in a studio. Sort of, yeah. And I've definitely learned a lot more since I left than I did when I was there. Mm -hmm. And on a broad spectrum of things. You know, obviously on that narrow range of things I was doing, everyone there taught me what I know, but they didn't teach me anything else. <laughs> on the other hand, what a fab building. You never know who you're going to walk past it down the corridor. <laughs> Could be any musician in any genre, really. I remember when uh, Blur were mixing their first album, I'd walk into the front office for months and in the diary, in the penthouse studio, it kept saying this word blur. And I'm like, what on earth? <laughs> What's that? You know, why are they writing blur? Because no one had heard of them. So those sorts of people, I remember when Oasis were in Studio 2, you've got to go and have a look at that sort of setup when a band like Oasis is in. Millions of guitars lined up against the wall. It's crazy. But, you know, all genres. I remember one day I was stood in the queue to get a coffee and I realized I was stood behind Leonard Bernstein mm -hmm. with a halo of smoke around him in the pre-smoking band days. He was in front of me and over in the far corner was Kate Bush. You know, there's not many places you get that sort of juxtaposition of people. Great place. Sounds but, exciting. Yeah. Sounds like a place yeah. everyone wants to be, at least for some time. Yeah, exactly. It's like the TARDIS. You look at it from the outside, it's just a frontage of an old Georgian house. Mm -hmm. But you go in and, you know, it's on four floors. Studio One is the size of a barn, like a big barn. You get an orchestra and a choir in there with room to spare. <laughs> and Studio Two, you can record a symphony orchestra in, you know, the Beatles studio. Mm -hmm. So that's bigger than most studios, but it's only a third of the size of Studio One. And Studio Three, which was converted when I was there, and I was there from 1986 to 2000. When I first started, it looked like a small version of Studio Two, but now it's an out-and-out -out pop studio. Mm -hmm. uh, with one of the largest SSL desks in the world in there. Can't remember how many inputs it is, but it's pretty big. And then other mixed studios. But the thing is, you know, Abbey Road is still there. You know, loads of studios have closed down over the last 20 years, but Abbey Road's still there and still seems to be doing okay, which is great. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. It's a quite a piece of history. Yeah, it's music folklore, isn't it, Abbey Road? Yeah. It's just it's part of the history of the sort of recorded music. They just had their, their 80th birthday, I think. Studio One and Studio Two still look almost the same now as they did then. It's like walking to a time warp, but they, they don't want to... I mean, this is the studios, not the, not the control rooms, of course. They yeah. don't look like they did yeah. back then. Everyone loves the sound in those rooms, so they're not going to change it. You know, so you still got the sort of herringbone wooden floors mm -hmm. and all that. There's still the, in Studio 2, if you go out the back, there's still the old echo chamber with tiles on the walls, and it's still used as uh, that early reverb. has a certain quality to it. And you walk down the corridors, and it's almost like walking through a, a museum of recorded sound, because every single format that's ever existed, mm -hmm. there's a tape machine or a recording machine somewhere in the building to be able to play back masters that were recorded in that format. They have to keep them going in case they need to play the tapes at some mm -hmm. point. You walk down the corridors and there's analog tape machines from the mid-60s that the Beatles used, right through to 48-track digital tape recorders, which mm -hmm. cost a quarter of a million pounds each on half-inch tape. 
It's quite astonishing, really. But then, of course, computers came along and those bits of gear became obsolete overnight, almost. You yeah. know, and you, you fought out a quarter of a million and you've got three or four of them. And all of a sudden, no one needs them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. The, the sort of investment to keep a place like that up to date at the top of the game, I mean, it's immense, which is why it's expensive going there. Hiring a studio, you've got to know what you're doing. I can't quite remember what the prices are, but three grand a day in Studio One, sort That's of money. A, it's <clears> a lot of money. Yes. Mm. Fair amount of money. Going to the beginning. Yep. How did you get a job? Because I assume it's not very easy to get a job in Abbey Road. No. Especially in post-Beatles era. Yeah, when the place was known. Yeah. Yeah, because prior to that it wasn't really known. You create your own luck in a way. At the time, I was working for local radio, BBC Radio York, and I got work there simply by walking up to reception saying... Could I have a job, please? So I got a strange look and the and the girl on reception said, Well, why don't you write to Tony, who was a programme director? So I wrote a letter to Tony and he invited me in for a chat and said, Well, you can do some stuff here, as long as it's voluntary. So I said, Thank you very much. That's how I got into Radio York. And after a while, when they suss out you can do a few things, you do get paid for this that and the other not mm -hmm. very much things like doing the early morning shift which no one wants to do getting into the station at four in the morning and well, archiving big yeah. yeah like, that's that's right straight from the street almost so well, yeah yeah and, and back back in, in those days you know the weather forecast it's not like now one of my jobs was to phone round 10 people in north yorkshire half five in the morning say what's the weather doing tom <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're jotting it down. Yeah, so I was doing that. You know, manning the phone on phone-ins, doing vox pops and archiving that sort of thing. And then I bought a, a music yearbook and made a list of all the studios and record labels in the UK that I could find that looked reasonable. Mm -hmm. And I typed two hundred letters, approximately. Again, you know, being a typewriter, you make a mistake, pull the sheet of paper out, and start again. Mm -hmm. Quite an effort, and phoning these places up before you send a letter off to find the name of someone to write to so you never say dear sir stroke madam mm -hmm. find a name and i sent off those 200 odd letters and i got one positive response just one so it's a bit like now you know most people don't respond mm -hmm. and those that do it's uh, thanks for writing but we haven't got anything but i did get one one positive response which was from the director of a and r at emi classics Mm -hmm. curiously so i went down to his swanky office in the middle of london in gloucester place for a chat he was great actually but after five or six minutes he said something along the lines of i don't think you'd fit in here very well and i thought i'd blown it, mm -hmm. it he said then went on to say i think what you're after is working up at the studios instead up at abbey road so i said oh that would be very nice <laughs> <laughs> and he said i'll tell you what i'll do I'll write a memo to the boss up there, Ken Townsend, who was a great guy. He was in on the Beatles sessions in the mm -hmm. 60s. He invented flanging. He wrote to Ken, and a couple of weeks later, Ken wrote to me and said, come and have a chat. <laughs> so, was it great? So I went and had, had a... Casual a, chat in that Yeah, ju just a casual chat. And he was showing me around the studio, and we walked into the editing rooms. This was literally six months since they'd switched from analogue to digital editing. So they had this newfangled editing machine. Yeah. I won't explain now, but it's like if you look at it now, you think it was like from the Ark, you know. But back then, it was all state of the art. And the head editor, David Bell, he stood up and said, "Come and sit here." He was editing a, a big orchestral score by Stravinsky, 
I can't remember which one, but it might have been the Rite of Spring or Petrushka. But, but big orchestral score, quite complicated. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to put the music into play. And when the music gets to here in the score, press this button here. So I was testing if I could read music, yeah. obviously. So I did because, you know, I was a bit geeky as a teenager, I have to mm-hmm. confess, really. One of my things was collecting miniature scores and following them. I could, I mean, it's a bit silly to say you can read a score with your eyes closed, but I could read a score very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quite a complex one with, you know, 50 lines going on. As luck had it, the previous week, one of the other editors, and there were four editors there at the time, had been shifted sideways for whatever reason. So there was a gap in the editing department. So Ken and David went into the foyer, had a little chat, and then came back into the editing room and said, would you like a job? <laughs> I said, well, thank you very much. I don't mind if I do. <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen like that these days. But then, of course, even then, they, they couldn't really do that because they, they got kicked up the backside by human resources, mm-hmm. you know, personnel, as they were called back then. Said, you've got to advertise it, even if the advert's internal. It has to be advertised. Mm-hmm. So they then advertised for the job they'd already given me. And people coming around being interviewed for it, which is a bit disconcerting because they were coming looking into the room where I was actually in mm-hmm. editing away. But nevertheless, I kept it, which was uh, a relief. But one of the guys who came round uh, was a great friend of mine. He at the time was a, a roadie for EMI Records, just mm-hmm. humping gear for bands. But he'd done a, a music and physics degree at Cardiff. And he obviously knew what he was doing. So to keep him in the building, they put him into accounts, just, you know, bashing numbers for a while, just to keep him in the building. And then he moved from that to tape copying and various other things. And he's now one of the top four or five film recording engineers in the world. And that's how he got in, by starting off in accounts. You've got to be prepared to do anything, you know, clean the loos, make coffee, anything. You know. start somewhere. Yeah, that's right. The main thing is you can't put people under pressure when you're after a job. If people feel under pressure, they close up. Mm-hmm. Treat it as networking, getting to know people. Then when something does crop up, they might think, ah, I know a guy. Well, I know a guy. Let's give him a call or ask him to send in a CV. Send in CVs, and if they look good, then there's a good chance that it'll be filed. Then when a job does come up, you go through the file of CVs mm-hmm. and pick out some interesting-looking ones. So it's always worth sending a CV in because... It could get filed, and a year later you might get a, a response. Yeah, yeah. So you know, but anyway, that's that's how I got in. I had a great time. It was uh, a lot more relaxed back in the sixties, though, where before you know money men took over. Businesses tend to be run by accountants these mm-hmm. days. But back in the sixties, say if you were going off doing a recording session in Rome, which happened a lot, an opera or something, mm-hmm. and they would take editors out back then just to test edits to see if they were going to work and. You'd finish the recording sessions, say on a, a Friday, there'd probably be another one starting on the following Tuesday. So the company would pay for everyone to go to the beach for f- three days and it's then co- nice. come back into town mm-hmm. and carry on. Well, now you'd come back to base these days, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. So well, you get a couple of days of work quickly, out of you. Quick <laughs> yeah. fight to, uh, back to England and then back to Rome, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Probably would be cheaper these days. I think, yeah. You can get a, a return <laughs> air flight to, to Rome for about 50 quid, can't yeah. you? <laughs> yes, it's crazy. Yes. Yeah, there we go. Um, so yeah. just to conclude everything mm-hmm. uh, we talked about, mm-hmm. do you enjoy all of this? I love I it. guess yeah. I know the answer, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just interested in your answer. What do you think? And maybe why do you enjoy it? 
Well, it's a tricky one, really, isn't it? I, I suppose I, I really enjoy it because I love the music. Mm-hmm. I never really got into it because I was a uh, you know into all the gear and microphones. So, I mean, my wife calls me a bit of a microphone geek <laughs> these days, but I never was really. I always loved the music, and that's the main thing for me. All the, the gear is just a means to an end, as far as I'm concerned. You know, when I'm working on a recording, I was trying to get the recording to sound, sound great, and if I need a particular plug-in or something, then I'll bring it up. Mm-hmm. But really, I find things like plugins really dull. It's the music that does it for me. Yeah. And whilst I s- carry on loving the music, I'll keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And that could be any genre. In any genre of music, there's great stuff and there's rubbish stuff. It doesn't matter what the genre is. Or, or there's... Stuff which you can accept is great, you just don't like it. Yes. You know, yes. And you have to be objective sometimes. In fact, sometimes, in a strange way, it can be better to work on music you don't actually like because then you're focusing more on what you should be focusing on, which is how good does it sound? Mm-hmm. Are you doing the best you can for it? Sometimes you find yourself wallowing in it a bit. Then you have to bring yourself back round again mm-hmm. and do what you're meant to be doing. Yeah, It's amazing to see to great people playing great music. And, you know, I've worked on some of the best, really. So, yeah, I can't grumble. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you for coming today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for our conversation. No problem at all. I've quite enjoyed it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Having a chat. It's good good to hear. Yeah, it's always good to have a chat. Hey. Yeah. What an incredible person, don't you think? But that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more info about my work, visit MarvelousAudio.com. See you next time. The story of my drive with Ryan Sayer. With Ryan Sayer.